I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you in our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at consminds, that's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 12, we read The Great Betrayal by Patrick Buchanan from 1998. Patrick Joseph Buchanan was born in Washington, D.C. in 1938. He came from a large Catholic family of nine siblings. His father was a partner in an accounting firm, and his mother worked as a nurse and homemaker. Buchanan attended Gonzaga High School, where he graduated first in his class in 1956. He then entered Georgetown University on a full academic scholarship and graduated with honors in 1961. He received a master's degree from the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University in 1962. At age 23, he became the youngest editorial writer on a major newspaper in America. That was the St. Louis Globe Democrat. In 1965, Buchanan became the first full-time staffer for Richard Nixon's 1968 presidential campaign. From 1969 to 1974, he was a special assistant to President Nixon. And after the president's resignation, he served President Ford until October 1974. After leaving the White House, Buchanan became a nationally syndicated columnist and a regular panelist on television news programs. In 1995, Buchanan returned to the White House, this time as Director of Communications. He left in 1987 and returned to journalism, his syndicated column, and to television commentary. In December 1991, Buchanan challenged President George H.W. Bush for the Republican presidential nomination and nearly upset the president in New Hampshire. In 1996, he ran a second time for the GOP nomination. This time he won the New Hampshire primary, but finished second for the nomination to Senator Bob Dole. He ran for president again in 2000 as a member of the Reform Party. Buchanan has written 14 books, including seven straight New York Times bestsellers. He published this book, The Great Betrayal, How American Sovereignty and Social Justice Are Being Sacrificed to the Gods of the Global Economy in 1998. He's married to the former Shelley Ann Scarney, a fellow staff member in the Nixon White House. Buchanan, you can see from that biography, has definitely the background in conservative politics. He's, he's been around. He knows, he knows the issues. This book, which focuses a lot on trade and nationalism, I thought was, was interesting. He starts out with his sort of his personal journey to how to where he is now or where he was in 98. It remind it reminded me of the uh, Irving Crystal book. And then he said, well, I used to be the other way. You know, he used to be a big time free trader and then gradually migrated his, uh, his thinking after, I guess, after leaving the white house. So I know this kind of personal journey books are interest, interesting to me because it, you know, when you go against the tradition, you, came up in and had practiced for a long time. It usually means something has, has really influenced your thinking. And I don't know. I'm not sure what that was in Buchanan's case. I mean, I guess there was, there was the recession going on when he ran against Bush in 91, but it wasn't a particularly terrible recession compared, not even as bad as I think the one in 87. 
But, uh, so his journey from a Reaganite, more libertarian conservative to the kind of conservative who's you know, looking back to preserving the past or the, the mythic past even is interesting to me. After giving his a description of his personal journey, he sort of sets the stage for what he sees the current situation says we are now two nations divided by class so he says uh, he sees a, a class divide in america on the one hand you have the professional class which is the bankers the lawyers the investors lobbyists academics journalists executives high-tech entrepreneurs this professional class is he says prospering beyond their dreams doing very well in america and then on the other hand you have essentially the working class this would be blue-collar workers factory workers, those who work with tools and machines and with their hands, and then other white, white collar workers who spend their days working for somebody else, maybe accountants or mid-level sales managers. And he says this, this half of the country is the forgotten and the left behind. He calls this also middle America. He says for middle America, something went wrong. They played by the rules, but the promise was left unfulfilled. And this is a land of anxiety downsized hopes and vanished dreams he says economic insecurity is the condition of life you know paying for student loans or trying to find a way to pay for college when you're just making ends meet call it paying for college for your kids or something like that this is the land of where company towns used to rule and thousands of people supported a single company and now those company towns have become ghost towns and the way he describes this ought to sound awfully familiar to us in 2019 mm -hmm. Because it basically tracks President Trump's inaugural address. You know, we see we see two Americas. We be, we see some people who are left behind. We see people who are not making it in America. Now we, we hear this on the left too, but this this is the nationalist version. Right. This is the the right side version. Yeah. This um. I mean, the the phrase two Americas" made me think of John Edwards' campaign in '08. That was yeah, his absolutely. big stump speech: two Americas. But yeah, it also definitely brought to mind that there was that. Uh, Peggy Noonan article in 2016 in the Wall Street Journal about the protected versus the non-protected or the unprotected, which sort of basically rephrases this argument of like, are, do you have security or do you not have security? You know, and that's kind of, I think, what Buchanan's getting at. Although, honestly, I don't know that um, there's ever been a time when most people could say they were completely secure in their financial situation. Well, that's what's interesting because there's a deep nostalgia for this bygone mm -hmm. era. And he, he turns to the 50s like so yeah. many do. He says, the times when we all sacrificed together as in World War II and when we all prospered together as in the 1950s are gone. And I think, you know, both on the left and on the right, for different reasons, of course, hail back to the 1950s as, as the golden era. In some ways, you know, in the 1950s, industrial America was very powerful, partially because we were basically trying to build up our competitors because uh, you know europe had been ravaged by world war ii japan you know we were helping to build from scratch and there was huge markets for our exports because they couldn't provide for their own i mean they didn't have these countries didn't have a comparative advantage in anything mm -hmm. so if there, there was a time when you know a short period where we could dominate the globe but that never was going to last no and I, th I think i've made this point before and i think a lot of people have is that when you because I, I see it as much on the left when they're talking about you know, high income taxes and high unionization rates. And look, we were still successful. And it's, it's to your point, we're the only game in town. We could handcuff ourselves with all sorts of things. And we'd still be the only ones putting out that much steel, that many cars, 
you know, that many refrigerators because Europe had torn itself apart. Japan was all blown up. You know, who else? What other country in the world was industrialized and mostly not destroyed? I mean, smaller ones like Canada and Switzerland, but they that's a drop in the bucket compared to the American economy. Yeah, people look at that as our golden age, and it's it's kind of fake because it's not that we were doing anything ourselves that was particularly different to get us there. It was just that partly by the good fortune of being separated from the rest of the world by two big oceans, and then just partly because mm-hmm. we're on the winning side of that war. We, uh, we, we mm-hmm. managed to find ourselves in a favorable situation, and we did take advantage of it. And a lot of the benefits of that did get to different classes of people, which was good. But I think whenever I hear that sort of thing, you hear from the Bernie Sanders types a lot, you know, well, we could put the exact U.S. code in place that was in place in the 50s and it would not recreate that situation. You know, there's no Mm -hmm. there's no law that's going to take us back to the time where we could just pump out cars that only lasted three years and people Mm -hmm. keep buying them and we could keep overpaying and underfunding pensions and it'll go on forever. Mm-hmm. The world has changed, but I think writers of Buchanan's generation are always going to look at that, partly because it was when they were young too. But they're always going to look at that and say, "Well, that's that's what we need to get back to." He has three main targets for his blame: the elites, global trade, and immigration. Mm-hmm. So, for elites, he says, "We listen to the professional class. We, being the general public in America, we listen to the." professional class elites on trade and the global economy. And these same elites, they got record stock prices and high corporate profits. We got millions of jobs created in retail sales with low pay and no benefits. And meanwhile, manufacturing jobs that enabled Americans with a high school diploma, he says, to live the American dream are shipped overseas. In full disclosure, uh, while reading this book, I, I really had to hold myself back because the the policy wonk in me really wants to go make make a point by point rebuttal <laughs> to, to so much of this. This is a different reading than we've had for me, because much of basically the entire book I disagreed with vehemently. But ra- rather than going point by point, I want to give a generous reading to this and sort of really take it in and and understand what, where he's coming from. But yeah, there, so there was a time when when manufacturing jobs. Uh, existed that all you needed was a high school diploma. You know, you could get a job with the company as a uh, straight out of high school as an 18 year old and stay there for 40 years and retire and get your gold watch and then get that condo in Florida. And it's true that situation no longer exists. I mean, having a high school diploma in 2019, if that's all you have or your high school dropout, well, you're, it's true. Your, your economic prospects are are not good. I, yeah, and part of that I think is all the, just the way there's changes in the educational system that devalued the high school degree too. And I think that is kind of a trap, and it's not a. Well, to your to your larger point, when Buchanan speaks about the elites, I think he sometimes sounds conspiratorial, like all these folks are getting together at Davos and you know planning the demise of the middle class. That I don't buy. I do think that there developed a kind of consensus among elite policymakers that maybe didn't take into account local issues and the sort of uh, Burkean conservatism, the conservatives of small platoons and things like that. I mean, it's funny, the left used to revile company towns because they were dominated by one factory. And now the nostalgic mm-hmm. left is saying, well, those company towns, boy, that was, that was living. 
you know, and eh, they had their bad points too. It's not good to be dominated by one company in your area because even if global forces don't take that away, the company can jerk you around pretty well too. Yeah, I don't totally go on board with Buchanan's characterization of the elite, even as a self-conscious class. I don't think they think of themselves that way. Or we, I don't know if I'm part of it or not. We are, we are attorneys after all. Yeah, I think we're uh, yeah. <laughs> but but um, there's there's something there, and it's it's something that a lot of people feel, and it's something that various politicians, including our current president, have tapped into really well. Is there's there's this feeling of left behindness, of forgottenness, and you know, whenever there's a problem, people want to blame somebody. Yeah. So let's get to his next point of blame. Global trade. Yeah. He says trade deals put American labor in competition with millions of workers willing to do the same jobs for a fraction of the pay of an American family needs for a living wage. And it just gives incentives for companies to flee America, to manufacture the fraction of the cost. And he says, ship the goods back to pocket the windfall. Well, I mean, that's still partly true. I think he's um, falling into the trap. A lot of protectionists fall into is the idea that, your choices are free trade or no trade. I don't think that's ever the way protectionists have worked in practice when they have been able to enact policy. And there's, he goes through a whole history of, of global trade and American history in the middle section of this book, which we're not going to break down bit by bit. But, you know, most of the tariffs were more about leveling the field, raising money for the government. It wasn't, there were a few tariffs that were purposely set so high that you just, that foreign manufacturers just wouldn't bother selling here. But for the most part, that's not what we're, what even protectionists were trying to do in the old days. And I, I think when he talked about global trade as this big problem, you know, it's trade's good. And he talks about this a lot. It's just sort of that we can set ourselves up where we sort of unilaterally enact free trade policies the way Britain did in the 19th century. And if you don't get that same free trade policy on the other side of the table, then we do put ourselves at a disadvantage. Yeah, so... You know, he tells a story about how every every Republican president from Lincoln to the New Deal, he said, has been high has been a high tariff man. This is this is to your point. And so he asked the questions: When did free trade become conservative orthodoxy? Because all Republican presidents had supported tariffs. I mean, I mean, you made this point, but just to make it finer, tariffs were used as the main source of income for the nation prior to the, the amendment to the Constitution that allows for uh, an income tax. That really was few tools that the president had to use in order to get some money. You know, in in prior era, it's true that we didn't have as much free trade. The fact is, since the 1950s, there's just been an absolute explosion around the world in the growth of wealth. And what changed? Well, what really changed was the massive increase in, in global trade. Now, again, I don't want to go point by point, but it is worth saying that, that trade Trade sustains 36 million jobs in the United States. That's nearly one in five. These are not just large multinationals. It's also small companies, farms, factories, farming in particular. We export soybeans, corn, pork to China, to East Asia, to Europe. We have the United States sends $2.35 trillion in exports, goods and services every year. Six million jobs in manufacturing exports. It's actually not true that all manufacturing jobs have disappeared. Right. It is true, though, 
that the manufacturing jobs require more than a high school diploma anymore. They, they're much more sophisticated. You're using computers, you're using technology, and it does require some advanced training, but not necessarily a four-year degree. In fact, most cases, not a four-year degree. In, in point of fact, the U.S. actually exports more in manufacturing in 2019 than they did in 1959. It's just that they're high-tech so it's also the case that blue collar workers earn 19% more in export industries than they than they do just manufacturing for the US. So and and I have more of these stats but I'm going to hold myself back. <laughs> this is not to discount the sentiment here that people feel like trade is hurting them because again they they sort of need somebody to blame. They are hurting. All that is true. Cuz we need to point and say, well, we used to have this huge factory and now it's gone, but now all of a sudden China has a factory. There is sometimes uh, a linkage, but the real fact of the matter is that efficiency, automation, that's really what's changing the, the economy. I mean, that's that's why a steel, a U.S. steel required 25,000 workers in 1955, but only about you know 2,000 in 2019, not because they're producing less steel so much as they're just doing it much more efficiently. Yeah, I think even a return to the levels of manufacturing Buchanan envisions won't make that factory town anymore because there won't be any. There won't be a, a factory that big that employs the whole town, you know, or even a substantial part of the town. You're, I mean, you're right. There's a lot of automation that's going to go on, even if these jobs came back here. Some of them be, be, would be uh, getting done by robots. But I think to, I mean, if efficiency has been good productivity has been good they've both uplifted the average american but i think buchanan's point is also um i mean one that's about the non-reciprocity and he's banging on japan a lot as people did in the 90s we hear that less now now it's china but uh and that's uh, the president too he also is because he's older i guess he's still mad about stuff japan does whereas really their economy has been pretty bad for a while they're not taking over the world anymore well, yeah, that, that made me smile because Buchanan has 75 pages of slamming Pan in this book, you know, stealing our jobs. And it, it just came in an interesting time because basically the time he wrote this book, well, from that time until now, Japan has had 0% growth for the last 25 years. Yeah. I mean, their jobs are going to China too. You know, their their factories are in, in China and South Korea, same way ours are. I mean, they've got some of the same issues we have with population growth too, where they don't have any. I mean, ours, our population is growing at least, but I mean, part of the, their, their stagnation is that they're not having natural population growth and they don't really allow immigrants either. So they've got mm-hmm. a lot of the problems that, that Buchanan focused on in America, Japan's going through the same thing. Yeah. And you mentioned immigration because that's the other mm-hmm. uh, main target for Buchanan. He says, uh, America has thrown open the door to tens of millions of immigrants Millions of illegal aliens cross the southern border annually to compete with unskilled and semi-skilled Americans. Now, he's actually very complimentary of of Mexican immigrants in terms of their work ethic and their desire and their hunger. So I really don't see any racism in here so much as he just sees these as competitors. And as they, if we open the doors to more immigration, well, they're going to fill jobs that Americans now can no longer have. And just as President Trump, you know, at this point also targets immigration along with trade. You know, Buchanan says, w- without the racism, he's, he, he's basically saying, like, we're, we're killing ourselves because the jobs that are left behind, you know, now we have to compete with all these foreigners who are just hungry to come in and take those jobs. 
Yeah, his immigration piece is probably the part I disagree with the most. Especially if all of these things turned out as he planned and all these policies were to create all these new jobs. There's not enough people to do them without some immigration. And, you know, the, the boom periods he, he's talking about when we did have a high tariffs, also we had high immigration. And a lot of these blue-collar jobs that he talks about were a lot of immigrants' first steps toward realizing that American dream. And I, I mean, right now our unemployment's like four percent. It was it was even below that a few months ago. And I don't I don't see where you get the people to do all these jobs without either returning to an age where people have large families or welcoming in you know skilled immigrants, you know, through the legal immigration process. The fact is, we just it, we need people. So I, I I've never really been on board with. The, that part of Buchanan's statement. I get what he's saying. A, a, a diluted labor, labor market drives down wages. There's, I mean, that's just basic economics. But, and, you know, as if you're, if you want to take that, apply that to the illegal immigration piece, I think it makes a lot more sense. But to call for a pause in immigration, as he does in, I think, chapter 15, eh, that's probably too much for me, anyway. You're exactly right. On the high skilled and the, on the low skilled side, there is, there's a, a thirst for more workers. I mean, in agricultural jobs, I, you know, in my profession, I talk with a lot of farmers, I talk with a lot of ranches, big, bigger operations, smaller operations. They're looking for workers. They can't, they can't get Americans to do the jobs and they pay well. Actually, it's well above minimum wage. It double in many cases. That's on the low skilled side. And on the high skilled side, you know, companies are just dying to get some high skilled workers, some engineers, some folks who work in technology, you know, people with advanced degrees who can come in and work in the, you know, high tech sectors. So on both ends, we really do need more people. And, you know, to your point, 4% is essentially full employment from an economic theory standpoint. So there are jobs to be had. We think of America as continually growing, but we are actually about ready to hit our peak population. And in the next 20 years, we'll start to actually shrink population in terms of uh, actual Americans. So, you know, we don't want to find ourselves in a position like Japan, as you said, where they have no immigration. So they have no younger people like filling jobs to pay for, you know, what we would have here, Social Security and Medicare. Who's going to pay for that? Well, mm -hmm. we're going to need some workers for that. So I agree with you 100%. Yeah. And it's, uh, I'm sometimes unsympathetic to the we can't get people argument. I, mean, I think it's starting to be true just because of how tight the labor market is. But there's also the the counter argument is always, well, you know, you can you you can get people. You just need to pay more. I mean, that would drive up prices, of course. But I think in many cases that that is that is right. But in just as many cases, uh, I'm not sure that it mm -hmm. is. You know, at least based on my own experience talking with folks. Yeah, I, I imagine it varies case to case. There probably are some people who have the help wanted sign out and they're paying good wages and just. Nobody, nobody's around. I think we're kind of on the same page with Buchanan's immigration ideas. So let's let's turn to his his proposal for a new nationalism, because again, you know, 2019, you should recognize <laughs> some of these. So he says the purpose of the U.S. economy is not to prosper mankind, but to put America first. America first. We heard that before. Yeah. Well, I I don't think that's wrong. I mean. I think every nation should look after their own people first, but, and, and he, you know, and he does draw a distinction between what he calls enlightened nationalism and I don't know the bad kind. They can they want to take over other countries in the name of nationalism. Don't want to force ourselves and our ideas on other countries, but 
You should look to your own first. That, that's not, as far as that goes, too bad. But then some of these points, I think, get a little odd. Oh, yeah. So his formulation, enlightened nationalism, he says, enlightened nationalism is a passionate attachment to one's own country, its history, its heroes, literature, traditions, culture, language, and faith. You know, all nations benefit from greater emphasis on what is best for their own people rather than sacrificing their unique character to what he says calls the gods of globalism. So nationalism is the spirit that enables the people to endure, he says. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I actually think that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. that um, yeah, it, it is, we I, have a unity. Yeah, I think it's a good contrast to um, Friedman's assertion back in episode eight about uh, it's a country is a collection of individuals, not something over and above them. I don't think most people see yeah. it that way. I think most of us, yeah, most of yeah. us feel that, you know, some attachment to these, to the United States and it, it's history and it's, and it's culture and it's heroes. Yeah. Contrast Friedman and uh, his individualism and, you know, freedom and elevating the individual and laissez-faire to provide the most freedom possible. Buchanan disagree, would disagree, say, he says, national economy and the free market are only a means to an end. There are highly, higher values than efficiency. This is something you've already mm -hmm. mentioned. The market should be made to work for man and not the other way around. So the people of a nation are a moral community. We must share values higher than economic interests or the nation will not endure. So where Fr Friedman saw economic liberalism as a path to greater freedom, Buchanan sees economic liberalism and efficiency and the constant striving for better and more efficient he sees he sees serious pitfalls that it's going to it's going to create uh, anguish on the part of folks people are going to get left behind you know we're not playing as a team anymore instead it's those elites who are out for their own aggrandizement and their own enrichment but what about the rest of us we're we're, we're supposed to be on the same side here and, and i think there is some appeal. yeah i think there's a synthesis between the two is that part of what we love about america is its tradition of freedom and that and its liberty and that you know, this is a nation where our rights are protected, even more so than other, you know, advanced democracies. So I, th I think some of what Friedman wants for everybody is part of what America does give to its own people. And that's part of what Buchanan and others would love about America is that that tradition of liberty, freedom, laissez-faire in some ways. So it's, they're not totally at odds, but I think they're starting from very different points. One is really individualistic. One is really kind of tribal and not that tribal is always mm -hmm. bad, but it's, that's it's group focused the same way um, that Nisbet was when we were reading that a few weeks ago. I, I think there's a middle ground here. It definitely comes off as being quite at odds. He lays out what he calls the goals of new nationalism. And I want to go through these because it's really fascinating and definitely draws some contrast from other readings we've had. So he, he lists these eight goals the first one is full employment with compensation as good as any on earth. So in other words, a guaranteed living wage. So that the new nationalism that he's talking about is essentially a, a right-wing socialism, a sort of a, a paternalistic socialism. See if you if we identify any similarities with, with Bernie Sanders. And this, this is where I, I like to joke. This is where the two extremes come full circle and, and the circle meets and they touch mm -hmm. because the political spectrum... I like to view more as a circle than as a straight line. And this is where it kind of comes around. And there's tons of uh, similarities between the two, between uh, Buchanan's formulation of the world and, and Bernie Sanders. Okay, so number one was basically a guaranteed living wage. Number two, a wider, deeper distribution of property and prosperity. 
Yeah, that's... Which just raises the question. Does that mean like expropriating property? That's the thing. It always sounds good when you say it at first. Like, oh, yeah, sure. More people should have stuff. But then other people already have the stuff. So how are you going to get it? Yeah, that's, that's, that's redistribution of wealth, confiscation of property. I'm not sure where, how that belongs in the conservative tradition. <laughs> that, that's a, yeah. at, at odds with every other person we've read this year who has talked about the value of property as the, the bulwark of liberty, as, you know, the basis of, you know, um, what Weaver called the last metaphysical, right? It's, uh-huh. uh, and I agree with them. It's, yeah, what Buchanan's saying sounds, not, I, I wish more people had stuff too, but yeah, where you, when it's wealth, wealth can be created. When we're talking about property, land, it, it's all art. They're not making any more of it, as somebody once said. So, yeah, that that one's a that one's a tough one to to fit into the rest of these conservative traditions. If nothing else, you know, this reading has really highlighted some of the contradictions. Because on the one hand, I can't imagine how you could sort of believe this and consider yourself conservative. On the other hand, that's kind of where. Well, it's where the Republican president is right now. So anyway, it's it's uh, it's almost like this this is a family feud that that needs some you know some extra attention. But number three, he says we need a standard of living that rises each year, and a family wage that enables a single parent to feed, clothe, house, and educate a large family in decency. So so on the one hand, you're like, well, yeah, that's a good goal of society. Mm-hmm. But is are we saying that the role of government is to guarantee? that a standard of living rises every year. I don't know. How do you, how do you avoid inflation with that? You know, I mean, if everybody's wages go up, nobody's wages go up, you, you know, I mean, yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, I certainly, I would say most people don't think that wages should go down. We shouldn't lose ground. But again, I don't know how you affect that without massive interference in the economy. And, you know, when he was talking mm-hmm. about what a free market is earlier in the book, he quoted uh, von Mises or, Von Mises. It's one of those names I've never said out loud, only read about. He talks about no institutional interference with free exchanges is one of the facets of a, one of the, one of the factors that goes into making a free market. And this isn't that the two, the last two points together, even all three really just require massive interference with yeah, markets yeah. and which requires massive government. <laughs> it's hard to see how that could work. We can take this general sense that people are worried that their kids will not do as well as, as they have done where, you know, since the 1950s, almost been a guarantee that your kids are going to do better than you have because of economic growth. I mean, you have year over year, larger economic growth. It, you know, maybe it is the case that, you know, three per 4% growth, we can't have into infinity, but I guess I'm a little biased. Well, I'm definitely biased on this because, you know, my dad, my parents did better than their parents and my wife and I are doing better than our parents. And I, I actually still see, huge room for optimism in America of, I, I don't see that my kids are going to do worse than me. So, um, but then again, I'm, I guess I'm part of the globalist elite in that whole earth and everything, but all right. So he says, uh, attack, he, what we need also is a tax system that leaves Americans with the largest share of the fruits of their labor of any industrial democracy. And here's where the New York times, Washington post will criticize, you know, Trump, you know, for tax reform saying basically like you got, elected on this populist, you know, right-wing populist ticket uh, platform. And the first thing you do is lower taxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think Buchanan would have ab- absolutely abhorred tax reform. I think he would have looked at it and said, you know, that this is a, this is more betrayal or something like that, where, where companies are 
you know, lowering their costs. Of course, I would argue that that's absolutely what was needed so that our companies don't flee America to go to a, a, a more reasonable tax jurisdiction. Yeah, I think he I think he'd be happy with reduction of rates at the bottom. But they've also since 98 been reduced quite a bit at the bottom. So there's there's not much Absolutely more to is. cut. Yeah. You know, I mean, when you're talking about cutting taxes, it's the rich who pay a huge share of the taxes in this country. So if, if taxes get cut, they're the ones who are going to save the most. And there's not much way around that anymore because we've already done so much with, uh, with tax cuts at the bottom brackets, with raising the levels where the different brackets kick in, with earned income mm-hmm. tax credits and you know, refundable credits of that sort. So I... Yeah, absolutely. I think we've already got a lot of money. If you're if you're a family and you're making fifty thousand dollars or less, you're not paying any federal tax at all. Basically, like, and, and if you're much lower than that or closer to the poverty line, then not only are you not paying federal income tax, you're also getting a check cut to you. To you know, to your point, earning income tax credit or the child tax mm-hmm. credit. So. Yes, yeah, so I think we've we've achieved about as much as we can on point number four here about a, a system that leaves Americans with the largest share of the fruits of their labor. Of any industrialized democracy, yeah. yeah. I mean, you look at other industrialized democracies; they're they're paying a lot more, including their their poorer people are paying a lot more. All right. So, as number five is diminished dependence on foreign trade for the necessities of life. We've already we've already talked about trade. Six restoration of America's lost sovereignty. So he makes yeah. this argument that that uh, the more we ship jobs overseas, the more we lose sovereignty. He makes kind of a conspiratorial argument that the corporate titans they're actual master plan is to eliminate borders and have open borders. I, I just don't see that that's right. But in any event, the, the sentiment is familiar to us, you know, build the wall. Uh-huh. Like Trump says, you know, if we don't, if we don't have borders, if we don't have a wall, then we don't have a country. And I mean, I think there's something to that for yeah. sure, but it's, it's really more rhetoric that speaks to this broader um, attitude towards uh, negative attitude towards uh, immigration and trade. Yeah, the sovereignty piece is a little vague here because I think we do more than most countries control our own destiny. I mean, if, if you looked at another industrialized democracy like Germany or France, they've given away a lot more of their sovereignty to the European Union. We, we don't have that. Uh, and now there's a lashback. Right, and they've given, you know, their Brexit. people aren't too happy about it now, but we haven't done even that. And to the extent we belong to international organizations like the UN or the WTO, whatever they come up with, we still have to enact as laws through our Congress and this, the same way that any other laws enacted. So I don't, I don't see them as losses of sovereignty because we can still say no. And there's not really any consequences other than we're not a part of whatever deal is going on internationally. Yeah, I agree. And loss of sovereignty is always tied up with the uh, you know, WTO, the World Trade Organization, this idea that we're handing over sovereignty to basically Brussels, Belgium, and the European elites. And, you know, not not to get into that, but the WTO really doesn't take any of our sovereignty. Basically, what we're saying is, if we have this disagreement, we need someone to step in and make a decision, but we don't have to follow it. And neither does any other country. And President Trump has already proved that because... His tariffs absolutely violate WTO rules, and uh, we're just doing it anyway. Yeah, so. that, that's sovereignty. <laughs> all right, so self-sufficiency in all areas of industry and technology vital to the national security. I think a lot of us would agree with this. In principle, how does it, how does it play out in practice? Well, I think the steel tariffs that we have right now, President Trump has imposed. He, he made this national security argument. You know, we can argue about how, how accurate or, or dubious that is, but... 
And finally, he says, we need maximum freedom for citizens consistent with the common good. And what is the common good? Well, I think he just told us the common good is making sure that the nation is taken care of, that uh, that we're all rowing in the same direction, that the wealth is redistributed, that folks um, have guaranteed living wage and so forth. So contrast that with Friedman. Friedman wants maximum freedom for citizens, and that is the paramount objective. We need economic freedom so that people, individuals, will have political freedom. But for Buchanan, he'll believe that maximum freedom is important for the individual. But what's more important, it needs to be consistent with the the greater good, not just the individual freedom, but the greater good and the greater welfare. Yeah, I think he's getting at this problem of freedom is a tool, but what do you do with it? He wants people to do the right thing. I think we all do. But how do you make that happen? How do you, I think he he would want the factory owner to think of his workers and their families as much as they think of their shareholders and the and their own profits. And I'd say that Yes, and here's where it comes full circle with, with Yeah, and I, say, I think people I, right, she says the I think people should thing. think that way, but I don't think we can make them think that way. I don't know how you can you can do that and be consistent with maximum freedom because that's once the government tells you which things you're allowed to do with your freedom, you don't have freedom anymore. You just it's an illusion. So, I think I what Buchanan wants is better men, by the way he judges mankind's good and bad sides. I think we all do. I think we, we would all like to see people have the freedom to do what they want to do weekly, but w- with that freedom to maybe make good choices that go beyond you know, squeezing every penny out of their industry and then shipping it overseas. We know we say, well, maybe, you know, and he goes through a lot of you know nice stories about factory owners who didn't outsource and you know stood up for their people and treating it like a big family and i think that's great i don't know how we can make that happen though through government i think that's that's about personal character it is striking though how many shared goals that this new nationalism would have with with a bernie sanders Mm -hmm. you know there there are plenty of nationalists like steve bannon who support single-payer health care support universal basic income you know increased welfare spending Trump said throughout the campaign that he would preserve Social Security. We're not going to touch that. We're going to we're going to preserve it. In fact, he's even said that he wants to expand on it. So again, here's where the political spectrum comes full circle and touches. We have a, a right wing socialism. What what I think maybe we would call a paternalistic socialism that shares many of the same you know attributes and and objectives as the left wing socialism. The you know Bernie Sanders like heading towards more communistic socialism. Yeah, I think in in, uh, in Canada and Britain, they call that a red Tory. It's not a tradition we typically have in American politics, at least not not as much as other countries. You know, the conservative who wants to use the power of government in almost, well, to the same degree as the socialist wants to, just maybe for different ends. Although, as you say, a lot of these ends are even the same. I mean, full employment, that's depending on what he means by that. That's that's definitely a, something straight out in the Soviet Union. I mean, we need. I mean, for an economy to work, sometimes people need to get fired. I mean, we've all worked with somebody who needed to get fired. You know, not everyone oh, is a good fit for the job he's in, and that's you know, there's always churn and people quit too. I mean, there's, there's like you you were saying earlier, we're we're just about at full employment as economics economists define it because you never it never hits zero. 
nor should it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that um, that horseshoe theory that the far left and the far right are getting together on things, and it's interesting to see how that's going to play out because these ideas, which were obscure in '98, are right in front of us now in our politics. And, and it's obviously speaking to a lot of people mm-hmm. because uh, he, you know, Trump was able to pick up a lot of steam with it. Frankly, it worries me a little bit because. It's true that tax reform is sort of the central legislative achievement for Trump so far, but that's almost almost exclusively due to the fact that you know establishment Republicans still have a lot of ability to to dictate policy on the Hill, at least. I th- I, I, I think a lot of the uh, intellectual spirit of uh, the mid '90s Republicans has kind of sputtered out, and there a lot of yeah. our answers to everything are. Well, cut taxes. Well, that doesn't answer. You know, it's like when you when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's, yeah, yeah. Cutting taxes is good. It it it's going to have less effect each time, though. Um, you know, when you when Reagan was cutting taxes, you know, some of the top rates were astronomical. That's when you like that Laffer curve actually made sense. You know, you were you were really changing the economy for the better by cutting those high rates. Now we're talking about rates that are less than half what they were back then. And, there might be more to being in Congress than voting on tax cuts. So final thoughts for Pat Buchanan? Well, I'd I'd say Buchanan's ideas are uh, a big part of what we're talking about in politics today. And you and I agree with different parts of them and disagree with different parts of them and with each other. And that's, but that's the, this is the kind of conversation I think we were looking to have when we started this podcast about what, what is conservatism? Is this part of it? And some of these things, I don't know how they can be, like redistribution of property. But other things, Buchanan's touching on things that people are talking about out there in uh, what he would call middle America, but also in, in you know, elite America. Because we all mm-hmm. we are one country and we do actually interact with each other, despite what you read. I see some of these problems of prosperity draining away from some parts of the country relocating in others or overseas and it's he's identified a a problem that's a real problem for people question is whether these solutions would actually do anything and that's i don't think some of them would i think some of them would though um but i think a lot a lot of it is uh iffy but i think something he's uh he's scratching an itch that a lot of people have and that's something we're going to have to reckon with whether you're conservative or liberal or something in between Buchanan is he's identified something that it's on a lot of people's minds. Absolutely. In economic nationalism, as you say, it's absolutely, it's, this is something we need to reckon with. It's more of a, I think it's more of a general sense than it is actual policy prescriptions. And, you know, Buchanan rails against trade and immigration and, and president Trump is doing the same. I think it has less to do generally with, those exact policies than it does with this general sense that people are left behind and we need to do something about it. It's, you know, it's incumbent upon us, I guess the you and I, who are the bad guys <laughs> in this, in this tale, sorted tale to um, find ways to, you know, share some of the, some of the, some of the spoils. I, I, I still think we have tremendous reason for optimism in America and, you know, some jobs are destroyed and others are created in, in, you know, the creative destruction that is the, the free market and international trade feeds into that where, you know, we just don't have many jobs for blacksmiths anymore, mm-hmm. but we do have, you know, great jobs for 
you know, in the, in the tech industry or even in, you know, services. And we have become much more of a services economy. There, there is some, maybe something lost there where folks maybe feel more connected with a product that, that comes over an assembly line. But in any event, I think that, you know, these issues, I agree with you that I don't, I can't hardly imagine how this would be considered conservative, but it, it's part of the mix. It's, it's also in the pot that we need to figure some of this stuff out. So I'm glad we read this. And next week, we're going to read Polar Opposite <laughs> Thinker, Friedrich Hayek. We're going to read his book, The Road to Serfdom, published in 1944. So hopefully you'll join us then. Thank you very much.